Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. As we celebrate Black History Month, we have two very special interviews for you today. First, WBGO morning host Gary Walker chats with director Barry Averich and producer Mark Selby about the new documentary on Hulu, Oscar Peterson, Black and White. We both wanted this to be Oscar's telling of the story. Not ours. Who are we to tell the story? Finding interviews through every decade of his life and performances that had been seen before was Mark's job and full uh, tribute to him in finding that extraordinary footage that's in the film. And I'll chat with the organizers of the 42nd annual Marion Thompson Wright Lecture Series. This year's virtual conference, hosted by the Clement Price Institute on Ethnicity, Culture, and the Modern Experience, is set for next Saturday, February 19th. She's such a fascinating person and so ahead of her time, obviously. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Pianist Oscar Peterson is one of Canada's and jazz's brightest moments. There's a new documentary out on Hulu about Peterson's life. WBGO's Gary Walker spoke this week with the director and producer of the wonderful film. When you take a look at any jazz musician of worth... The name family comes up more often than not. The name genius comes up perhaps too many times. But seldom and on rare occasion, those elements come together, family and genius. And such is the focus of a conversation we're going to have today about a wonderful documentary about a gentleman who, Count Basie said, was the best ivory box player I have ever heard. Quincy Jones said he's simply one of the greatest musicians in the world. And that documentation comes out. You can view it on Hulu on February the 15th. Who are we talking about? Oscar Peterson, black and white. And with us today, the film's director, Barry Averich, and the film's producer, Mark Selby. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Gary. Pleasure to be with you. For you, Barry, it's actually a family affair because when you were a young person, your mother took you to a performance of Oscar Peterson and you had no idea who he was, right? I didn't. I mean, she, you know, from the age of seven or eight, I was very fortunate that she would, you know, the, I'll use the Latin word, she would schlep me to concerts uh, all the time uh, and, uh, and got to see amazing people from Sarah Vaughn to, to Oscar and uh, 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 Pro Bailey and on and on and on. And, and along with that came this set of records in the basement in that teak cabinet in the, in, in the late 60s, uh, 70s of, of, of jazz records that both my parents loved uh, and rarely played anymore because who was listening to vinyl uh, then anymore? Everything had moved to 8-track and whatnot. But Oscar was one of those albums and that concert uh, was an eye-opener for me because I, I had just never saw anybody play like that in my life both hands too huh <laughs> both hands and, and you know it, it, gary you you referenced quincy jones earlier and it was interesting i i the first time i got to spend some time with quincy he was producing a young protege by the name of alfredo garcia um, who has since gone on cuban jazz artist who has since gone on to become a big star and those hands were very much like uh, Oscars in terms of how he could play. And, and and Quincy had referenced Alfredo in that session at Capitol Records that very late night we were recording. And I never forgot that. And then that was like 
12 years ago, fast forward to this, uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly Quincy had the ear. Indeed he did. And you obviously did too. Mark, do you have a background in, in, in jazz? I'm a, I'm actually a classically trained pianist. I went through the, uh, conservatory, you know, classically trained. So I don't have the ear for jazz that I would have liked. I've had to develop that on my own. And uh, I've always loved Oscar's music. I, I, it was, it's been a part of my life since I can remember. I remember when I learned to drive, my father had a, an Oscar Peterson CD in the car. The, it was uh, Oscar Peterson playing the Cole Porter songbook. That's how I learned to drive. Learning to drive was to the sounds of Oscar and the trio. It, it was really special especially because just having that musical background, I, I sort of relied on that knowledge a lot as we were developing the film, as we were hiring the musicians in the film, and as we were deciding which tracks of Oscar we wanted to feature throughout the, the documentary. This was a true collaboration and, and trust and new for me in that Mark is a musician and he kept me honest in terms of, you know, the, the pace, uh, the syncopation, uh, what tracks should go in and out or should, should remain in the film because Oscar had such a huge over of work. We both wanted this to be Oscar's telling of the story, not ours. Who are we to tell the story? But let Oscar tell it. So finding interviews through every decade of his life and performances that had been seen before was um, Mark's job and, and full uh, tribute to him in finding that extraordinary footage that's in the film. Yeah, one of the amazing things about jazz music is is discovery and, and a couple of things, a couple of many things that I discovered about Oscar Peterson was that he started on the trumpet and early on he wanted to be a baseball player. Yes, yes, uh, uh, yeah, which is amazing because you you know if you think about great Canadian athletes, it's a pamphlet, not a book, uh, and I'll get letters on that. Uh, but I, I don't mean necessarily Olympians, but you know baseball players are or some hockey players. So it, it is interesting that he wanted to play baseball and trumpet. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a feeling that Oscar can, if you put a drums in front of him or anything, he'd be brilliant at it. He had an ear. Uh, and, and of course, the trumpet, he had to give up because of health issues. And they said he just didn't have the lung capacity. So he goes at it in terms of piano, which his father really used as a, as a, as a discipline tool while, because he was on the trains working traveling the country as a porter. So if he could, you know, tell his kids, you play piano and here's your lessons for the week. And when I come back on Friday, you better be, you better be right dead on in terms of your game here. And so they did. And that was the discipline. And of course, you know, Oscar didn't take him too long to sort of figure out how to get around that. But well, in his own autobiography, a jazz odyssey, Oscar talks about that himself, that his father was on the road and he said that gave him uh, the liberty to, to pretty much act up as a kid. And, and, you know, his mom would say, wait till your father gets home. Wait till yeah. your father gets home. And, and when father came home, you know, his form of discipline was to rein his son in. And he did it with an Art Tatum record. Tell that story. That's completely true. Mark, do you want to uh, talk about that? I mean, Art Tatum was an incredible influence on Oscar. Oh, of course. And, uh, I mean, the story goes, and Oscar would tell it many times throughout his career, that his father played him an Art Tatum record. But of course, Oscar didn't know who Art Tatum was at the time. He just hears this music coming out of the, you know, the 78 RPM record. And he turns to his father and says, who are the two guys playing piano? And his father says to him, that's one man. 
And he couldn't believe that you, the piano could be used in that way, that it could be played that fast, that it could be. He, he honestly thought that the, that just wasn't possible. So now that became the benchmark for Oscar Peterson throughout his career, how to accomplish what Art Tatum seemed to do so effortlessly. And I think we all know that Oscar certainly rose to that challenge and, uh, you know, certainly on par with Art Tatum in terms of the jazz pianists that belong on, on the Mount Rushmore of, uh, of, the, of that genre. So from a technical standpoint, just pristine, but also from the standpoint of one of Oscar's heroes, he had a few, Teddy Wilson, but the one I'm thinking of was Nat Cole. You know, he would say just as much with the space in between the notes. And that was Oscar Peterson, too, I think, that drew so many people in over the course of his career. I, I think two things, you know, with Oscar, you know, certainly a sense of composition, uh, are three things that certainly his ability to play like a freight train. And then the thing that left me and, you know, Mark, you can weigh in on this. The thing that really blew me away in, in researching the film and, and getting to know Oscar was the generosity that he had for his musicians that he played with. It was never the Oscar Peterson show. He truly understood the sum of all parts. We've all seen those documentaries of certain musicians, whether it was, you know, James Brown or, Jerry Lee Lewis, or, you know, it was all about them. And if the musicians came in late, he'd find them. And it was all, it was just about them. Oscar truly was so generous in his trios. Nat King Cole starts out in this jazz trio. And as he becomes more of a pop artist, he sort of stepped away from the piano and more in front of the microphone, which suited Oscar just fine. Because as you learn in the documentary, Oscar had a wonderful singing voice that he didn't use nearly often enough. But Oscar Peterson's singing voice sounded an awful lot like Nat King Cole's. I still have the record to Nat with respect. On that's, right. that's right. He did a whole <laughs> yes. record. I and have that record. Like, they had made a pact, a jo half jokingly, I think, but it, it, Oscar talks about this in the film, where you know they had made a pact, which uh, Oscar said, you know, I won't sing as much if you don't play as much, and that way they sort of kept to their own territory. But of course, they could both do, they each did both equally as well. One of the shining moments for Oscar Peterson is he himself. In fact, he says it in the film. He says, "You don't play for Stan Getz like you would for Sonny Stitt." Right. You don't play for Roy Eldridge like you would play for Dizzy Gillespie. And where did he learn that kind of thing? Well, he learned it in the familial environment Correct. of jazz at the Philharmonic. You know, okay. some of those stories on the bus. And this, this is one of the criticisms I have about musicians today. They don't have this opportunity. As a bus is rolling down the road in the middle of the night, and Ella Fitzgerald decides to just start singing. And Herb Ellis you know, unlocks the guitar case and starts to play. And Ray Brown sets the bass out in the middle of the aisle. And you've got music. And you've got music in the moment. And even somebody like uh, Billy Joel, I think, who's also in the film, or Herbie Hancock, said, I had no idea 
that someone could play in the moment with that amount of velocity. And, right. you know, Mark, you talked about going for your driver's exam with your dad in the car, listening to, you know, the Oscar Peterson, Cole Porter. I'll bet you missed your exit, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> now, this this film we're talking about, for you people listening right now, uh, makes its, its television premiere on February the 15th on the Hulu channel. So it's just not three guys sitting around talking about it. You're going to be able to see it for yourself and see what a genius, but how family is so important to someone like Oscar Peterson, be it his mother, his father, his sister, right? Who, who you know, the sister was a musician too. Uh, Oscar had the luxury of having this raw talent that, you know, he could practice his lessons you know, 10 minutes before his dad came home and yeah. said, what have you learned in the last week? And uh, he showed us all what he learned. But, oh, man, I'm telling you, just an amazing ability. Had his own national television show when he was a teenager and was sitting around the house with his mom and he was bored. And she said, what's the matter? He said, oh, there's nothing to do. You know, I says, well, you got a radio show. Why don't you make a record? He goes, oh, it's not like that, Mom. You just don't make a record. She goes, well, why not try? <laughs> and he calls the then president of the Canadian RCA record label. Yes. And the guy takes his call and says, I know who you are, and invites him in. And the result was an April 1945 date with Oscar Peterson's trio captured in Montreal Listen for yourself, man, to that left hand. Oscar Peterson, I got rhythm. He sure did. Whether it was in a group, in a large band, I know the, the film opens with a trio version of Blues for Big Scotia, which which I know from bursting out with, with uh, the Ernie Wilkins big band at Oscar Peterson. Oscar Peterson, Black and White, makes its television premiere on February the 15th. It's on the Hulu Network. I urge you to look for it. And we're talking with the director, Barry Averich, and the producer, Mark Selby. Gentlemen, as people are watching this, perhaps some for the very first time, what should they look for? What, what will, should they glean from this wonderful documentary? I, I think for me that, you know, the, the genre of jazz is everywhere in, in uh, all kinds of music today. Uh, had we had more time in the film to explore it, it touches on it a little bit, that many of the great artists today, whether it is Billy Joel or whether it is you know rap artists and hip hop, they're all sampling from jazz. Jazz is you know the ultimate musical art form. It began with jazz, in my opinion. And so just listen, get lost in this film and Oscar's story 
Barry Averich, I thank you, sir. Mark Selby, I thank you, too. You've uh, saved you. my job for maybe a few more months. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. the time today, and I appreciate this wonderful documentary. Oscar Peterson, Black and White, Hulu Network, February the 15th. I'm Gary Walker, and thank you for listening in. You can hear the entire conversation about Oscar Peterson, Black and White, at WBGO.org. February is not only Black History Month, but it also means it's time for the MTW series in Newark. And joining us on the WBGO Journal are three very special people who are here to talk about the 42nd annual Marion Thompson Wright Lecture Series coming up Saturday, February 19th, including some other events leading up to the big virtual event. Jack Chen is the inaugural Clement A. Price Professor of Public History and Humanities at Rutgers University, Newark, and the director of the Clement A. Price Institute on Ethnicity, Culture, and the Modern Experience. He's been in that position since 2018. Salamisha Tillett, the Henry Rutgers Professor of African American Studies and Creative Writing, the founding director of the New Arts Justice Initiative, and the associate director of the Clement Price Institute. And also our special guest is acclaimed author and historian Graham Russell Gow Hodges, who is the author and editor of the new book, The Marion Thompson Wright Reader. He's also a professor of history and Africana and Latin American Studies at Colgate University. Great to have you all on the WBGO Journal. Thank you. Great nice to see to you again. Be here. It's wonderful to have all of you. Let's start with you, Jack. Uh, thanks for joining us again. It's always great to see you. Tell us about the theme this year. You know, the theme is always interesting to me and always has significance. And this year, it's play and performance. And it's also part of a new series, the Black Portraiture series. Tell us about play and performance. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to see you, Doug. And as uh, Clement Price would say, um, the it's that time of year, the third Saturday of every February of every year, uh, people gather for this tradition. This is the 42nd year. So it's really quite remarkable for such a longstanding series to be continuing and flourishing. And uh, I should just say that um, the, the theme and the exhibits um, that we're featuring this year are really building on the work of our dear esteemed uh, colleague, photographer, uh, curator, uh, Deb Willis, uh, who was a former colleague at NYU uh, and uh, who, who kind of really formulated with Mancha Diawara and also Skip Gates, this concept of black portraiture. So this is an exhibit that has, um, has been circulating. And I'm really happy to say that uh, Salamisha Tillett then picked it up and then has added two exhibitions to this and also formulated uh, a three-day program culminating on the Saturday. Uh, so play and performance is really something that is um, really keying into something fundamental to um, all peoples um, that uh, that uh, really is look is really about um, really how our imaginations as young people are kind of free, but.
But then as we get older and as we encounter more uh, of the crazy experiences um, of life, um, you know, our children now are going through um, COVID lockdown and that's their, that's their experience. So as, the, as people are encountering the harshness of life, the racism, the violence, then in many ways that imagination is knocked out of them. Um, but uh, here we wanted to make sure that uh, in some ways there's a moment now for us to kind of lighten up a little bit and, and to focus on uh, play and performance. But Salamisha is the one who really is responsible for pulling all this together. So perhaps uh, Salamisha can talk more about it. Wonderful to see you, Salamisha, again. And, you know, it's very exciting. You always have great speakers at MTW. And, you know, this year is no exception, including the incredible violinist Regina Carter, who, you know, is just near and dear to WBGO's heart. She's been at the radio station many times. What a performer. But we have a powerful lineup. And you're the reason why, because you bring these people in and uh, they are always so interesting to hear from. Give us a quick synopsis of the speakers and uh, what they'll be talking about. Yeah, I guess just to add to what Jack was saying, you know, in African-American culture and Afro-diasporic uh, traditions, play is both always a kind of deeply political act, whether it's carnival in Trinidad and Tobago or in Brazil or Junk New in, in the Bahamas or Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And so we really want to embrace that the, the idea of play being a, a place of performance, a play of subversion, uh, it's oftentimes used against people of color, right? Whether either it's, you know, segregated swimming pools that people don't have access to or pantomime and minstrelsy. So we wanted to really cover the range of what is embodied in that word play, uh, both as a practice of liberation and also to recognize the ways in which it's been used against Black people historically here in the United States and throughout the globe. And so, yeah, I think the lineup is really exciting. So you have something as broad as playing performance and, and who fits under that or what kind of artists speak to that. And so as you, you noted, we have the amazing Grammy nominated uh, violinist Regina Carter, uh, Tyler Mitchell, who's a photographer uh, best known uh, for being the first African-American uh, to have his work on the cover of Vogue and the youngest photographer to have his work on the cover of Vogue. Um, and he really deals with things of utopia and, and freedom and leisure. Um, Bisa Butler, who is a, I always say she's like a, a New Jersey hero and a really well-known um, visual artist who's been doing beautiful quilt making and portraiture work. And then of course we have Dominique Marceau, who many people will be uh, familiar with uh, her, her her work, The Temptations, just left Broadway, and now she has a new um, show on Broadway, Skeleton Crew, starring Felicia Rashad. So it's a really, really dynamic, interdisciplinary, um, cross-generational uh, lineup, and I'm really excited that we're going to have it here in the city of Newark. Graham Hodges has written so many powerful books, and the newest work is the Marion Thompson Wright Reader and it includes a number of things. I wanted to get your impression of what would she be thinking about in 2022, hearing that there's a conference in her name, and this year's theme would be play and performance. I think Marion Thompson Wright would be delighted as much as she could be. She had a lot of personal issues, but I think that she she's absolutely appreciated Black culture. She lived in it. She uh, studied it, wrote about it. Her, it was all about her life. Uh, and so uh, the terrific lineup that Selamisha just described, I think it would be things that she would really want to take part in, to be there. The fact that it was in her name, she would say, about time. 
But as Jack said, it's been going on now for 42 years. So, uh, you know, she's well recognized uh, for, for this. And uh, I think it's great. We talk about it every year, Jack, that when Dr. Price and Giles Wright came up with this idea of having this special series, even as it was going, they would have no idea the impact that it would have worldwide. And especially when we talk about worldwide is because this lecture series is online for anybody to take part in this year. And that's a special thing. Tell us about the fact that it is online and how we've had to adjust with the Marion Thompson Wright lecture series, but yet it opens it up to so many more. Well, there's, there's nothing to replace in-person gatherings and, and uh, so much of the beauty of Marion Thompson Wright is the is is the is the growing audience of people returning. Um, just a couple of years ago, when we were meeting still in person, I was asking how many people had been at the very first MTWs, and a number of people raised their hands, and then more and more as the uh, years went on. Um, and it's really a way for people to uh, see each other, to to kind of recreate the community that has been building and building over um, these many decades, uh, which has had a tremendous impact on the city of Newark, but also what Clem would call greater Newark in terms of the kind of ramifying effects of these historically informed uh, lectures that would give people a sense of, um, of, of the struggles and ways in which a new black culture was being created um, that really resonated, I think, with the with the struggles of the city from the 80s onwards. Uh, so um, having it online now, of course, makes it more widely available, even when things return to possibly being in person again, hopefully soon, that um, we will probably continue this tradition to just make it more broadly available. I think the, the amazing speakers we have every year uh, really deserves that broader audience and people can begin to see some of the excitement of what's being generated out of the city of Newark. There's two more events that are happening right before Saturday. Can you talk about Thursday and Friday's event real quick? Yeah, well, I've also recently um, uh, been appointed the director of Express Newark, uh, which is the Center for Socially Engaged Art and Design, which is based in the Haynes Building right across from you, Doug. Um, yeah, so we have this conference that that Jack talked about um, uh, that's happening on the Friday and the Thursday and Friday. We have uh, an opening of the exhibition called Picturing Black Girlhood, Moments of Possibility in Express Newark. And it's a 50,000 square foot space. We're using all three floors and we're featuring um, black women and girl and genderqueer artists. Uh, photographers and filmmakers in conversation with each other for the first time uh, on the theme of black girlhood. And so you have people like Carrie Mae Weems and Latoya Ruber Frazier uh, next to underage or under 18 year old artists. Uh, most of the artists in the show actually are youth artists. So it's a really beautiful meditation on what it means to be a black girl across time in the United States and throughout the world. And then our community partner project for empty space at 800 Broad Street is um, hosting the solo exhibition of Shahrazad Tillett, who was a artist in residence at Express Newark, Shine's portrait studio in New Arts Justice for the last two years. This is a culmination of her practice here in the city of Newark, as well as her work in Chicago and Trinidad and Tobago on black girls, particularly on these moments of community celebration, whether it's carnival or whether whether it's the prom or whether it's just a young girl living through the pandemic um, and how do her, fa her family's um, sustain her through this moment. So it's really, you have very intimate 
um, examination and exploration of black girlhood and then you have a very immersive one uh, simultaneously happening. And so when we had this theme of play and performance, it seemed nice to meditate on, on girlhood and childhood as part of that. Graham Hodges, you know, when we hear about scholars and we hear, and, and, and you are one of those and you uh, have dealt into history. I, I personally I love history and I love to hear what everyone has to offer. It's done so well at the Marion Thompson Wright Lecture Series. And tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the challenge of, of being a, a scholar and trying to put it in layman's terms so everybody can understand really all the research that goes in that all of you have done through the years in your works so we can get it. Well, I think the Marion Thompson Wright Lectureship Series uh, offers a great opportunity for professional historians to work with the public. Uh, that starts in the first one in 1982 of Sterling Stuckey, who was a wonderful scholar. And there have been many terrific historians who have come to talk and uh, about Black history uh, at the lectureship series. So I, I think the grounding is absolutely there. Um, learning about her was rather a task. Uh, I first found out about her when I did a book uh, on Black New Jersey a number of years ago. Uh, and it seemed to me that she was so fascinating that so people had really not talked about who she was, that it was important to do so. Uh, you can see this picture of her. She was the first Black woman to get a, a PhD in the discipline of history, which she did at Columbia University in 1940. 1940, the book was published in 1941. And that is a, a photo of her that was taken by Scurlock Studios, the very famous Black-owned photography studio in Washington that was basically everybody went there to have their photos done. And so she's very, very proud of that. It's a beautiful picture and I, I think a terrific book. I just want to mention very briefly that um, we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of her birth. Uh, it's uh, September 13th. Uh, 1902. So uh, in about uh, eight months, uh, she'll be 100 years old. You can hear my entire interview with Graham Hodges, Salamisha Tillett, and Jack Chen about MTW at wbgo.org slash journal. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 6.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. Portraits in Blue was up next on WBGO and wbgo.org.